All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of Big Ideas and App Architecture. I'm your host, Tim Vale, and I'm really excited today to be joined by Dan Golden, the chief architect of a company called Triple Lift. Uh, Dan, welcome to the show. I love to get started by, you know, hearing a little bit about you, kind of your background, and certainly, you know, what you're doing today at Triple Lift. You know, it, tell everybody kind of what Triple Lift, Lift is and how you got there, I think, is, is a great way to start just to, to get things kicked off. Sounds good. First of all, thank you for having me. Like I mentioned before, I listed a lot of the previous episodes and I hope I can do at least as well <laughs> and be as interesting no to pressure. the other listeners. So no pressure. Uh, so once again, like I'm Dan. I had an interesting uh, story. So my dad is a self-taught computer programmer. He was a chemist and he got super uh, like into computers when I was a kid. So we emigrated from the Soviet Union in 89. And I think as soon as we could afford it, you know, he bought a computer, you know, the, the green text on the black monitor, you know, Pre-EGA, I don't know, pre, it's like EGA, CGA, like something along those lines, pre-everything. And so my, like I always got exposed to it, like, you know, played the games, got internet around middle school. And I actually think that's a really good time, right? Because I saw sort of the before era and then the post era dealing with dial-up, taking forever for images to load. You know, in college, you suddenly get exposed to like, you know, fast bandwidth, like that whole jazz. So in college, I really had a similar mindset for me it was hey my dad could you know teach himself code i've always liked computers but let me focus on something else so i studied a bit of math econ used that to get a few roles after college in uh, sort of a, it was called quantitative engineer but like these days it's data science right so i joke i was doing like data science before it was called data science i worked at a couple of companies ranging from a company that did a lot of sort of data analysis for pharmaceutical companies so that's when i had to learn to use the tape drives and you know loading data and extracting them running all sorts of analytics uh, did a little stint in the quantitative finance world uh, in the 2008 era, right? Where you know, sort of, maybe maybe we're in this era right now. Hopefully not. Yes, uh, and I do want to talk about that. By the way, at some point, I want to I want to kind of hear a little bit more about your experience there because yeah, you're right. I think we're entering kind of uncharted uncharted territories around certain times. So we'll definitely come back to that. Like I, I was a bit naive then, but for me, it was interesting, right? Because it was you know the usual day today suddenly got interrupted. And you're like, hey, I'm suddenly doing these new interesting things. Like, obviously, it's, now in hindsight, I'm like, it's terrible for other people affected. But like, on a personal level, I'm like, hey, I got to do some new interesting things. At that point, I also realized finance wasn't for me. I joined this company in New York called Yodel, about 200 people, doing pretty similar things, like, you know, quantum engineering. Where I got exposed a little bit to advertising. And uh, I spent a year there as a product manager like near the end, starting wanting to get a bit more awareness of the business. Had the usual, I think, engineer trap of becoming very solution-minded and not problem-focused. Right, so I would go out and like talk to people, understand their problems, and go out and do whatever I wanted to do anyway. So it didn't really <laughs> work out too well for me. Uh, learned I enjoy the engineering side a lot more. Engineers and, never yeah. do that, Dan. I, that really shocks me that uh, that people in engineering would would build what they want. It's just so obvious, you know. Like they don't really know. Customers don't know what they want, you know. They don't. Like, they don't. Only you know, Dan. Only uh, I know. Only only we know as engineers. So that's funny. We're all channeling our Steve Jobs, right? We all think we're delusional. Yeah, yeah. But um. So I ended up doing a startup after that, and that's like when I really learned a lot of the, I would say, like real broad, like full stack software engineering. Uh, it was a company called Glossy. Uh, we ended up rebranding to Pressy, but if you think about the era, it was around you know 2011, 2012, and around then there's a new social media network. You know, feeling like there's a new social media network being launched every day, and our product was let's sort of let people connect to all their social media accounts 
ingest everything they're posting, and not sort of deduplicate it, right? So you would normally, you know, post an image on Facebook and you post the same image on Twitter and Instagram. Like Google Plus was the thing back then. And we'd say, hey, this is actually the same image. Dedupe it and then make it and then sort of display them all on a web page that would auto update as you, you know, as you sort of post it across these social channels and really make this like living, breathing version of yourself. Uh, for people familiar, it was sort of a, kind of like an about.me, like was big at that time, and Flipboard, which was that like magazine style layout for your social media feed. So we tried to do that. We got a lot of interest, you know, from people who sign up. They're like, hey, this is awesome. This is great. But no one really ended up using it, which sort of is, you know, makes sense in hindsight. You know, you connect, you get a cool experience, and then you're like, well, what the hell do I do with this thing? We ended up, you know, doing a little bit of a pivot, selling to a few small colleges, like, you know, high schools. And they were actually have a real problem a real use case. They would skin it, add their own logo, you know, design it in their school colors, and then sell it to, or position it to, you know, their uh, alumni, parents. We ended up having a bit of a founder, you know, conversation, like none of us, I think in hindsight, we were all too sort of immature for it. And we're like, well, business, we don't want to do business, we want to do consumer. So we ended up selling it to a pretty small advertising agency. Like another joke I say is, you know, for some businesses, it's, you know, new life money, new generation money, new house money. For me, it was like, you know, new skateboard money. So almost all the value was in learning the tools, right? Because I come from a like more of a quantitative background and that dealing with like jQuery and AWS and like dealing with web servers. So like I think that was a very like for me, like a very formative experience. And that's when I ended up consulting for a bit, realized I really like being part of a team. And then I joined Triple Lift, where I've been over like almost 10 years now. And I could dig into that a bit, but I think I interrupted you. No, no, I, I was just going to point out that I, you know, and because I do want to, I want to go back to your experience as kind of a founder and, and going through that process, you know, because you're right, I, starting a, a business can have all sorts of outcomes. But I do think, and I'm glad you pointed it out, that one of the most important lessons I think learned is just the experience of doing it, regardless of the financial outcome, you know, just going through the process of starting something, going out on your own, having to deal with all the sorts of things that I think you're protected from when you're an employee of a company, you know, having to sort out all that stuff. So yeah, it would be fun to go back and talk about, you know, some of those lessons, you know, not just from technology, but just really kind of the personal side of learning about, you know, what it takes to start a business and, and go from there. But I do, before we go back in time, I want to hear a little bit more about Triple Lift because, you know, I have to admit, I, I've never had um, much exposure to kind of the ad tech space. Um, and, and so, you know, I've spent some time since you and I last talked doing a little bit of research about what Triple Lift does. And obviously, you and I talked a little bit about it, but it's some amazing tech and y'all are doing some really neat stuff. But just if you can spend a moment on kind of what it is, you know, what markets you're serving what y'all are building because i it was it was really really interesting when i when i dug into it a bit yeah it's like this is like the hardest question to answer because you know like <laughs> what do you do because it's <laughs> and I'll, I'll give a previous to why like you know i assume the audience is technical and it you is. know generally a lot of people say oh advertising stay away from it you know but you know a positive thing about it's like it is does power the open internet right now like imagine you know especially in you know, if you don't have, not wealthy, you can't pay for, you know, Wall Street Journal subscription. A lot of the content you get online is free and it is paid for through advertising. Like not to mention a lot of small businesses, you know, advertise in order to support their products. And, you know, they're the ones that have been affected you know, pretty heavily by, you know, Apple's uh, sort of anti-tracking sort of work. Uh, so where we sit, like going back to this, if you think of a typical ad, the way, you know, the way you see it is you go to a website or an app or whatever the case is, you know, it loads the content and there's a little bit of JavaScript that makes a request to an ad exchange, right? And that ad exchange then takes that request, extracts, you know, information like who is the, 
a user. What is the geography? What is the time of the day? What browser are they using? Fans it out, you know, to like dozens of different, like we call them like DSPs, like demand side platforms. And then they internally have all these proprietary rules and algorithms and logic, you know, for how do I choose the ad to show and how do I, how much do I want to pay for it? So there are some companies and, you know, people joke around like Critio that tends to be, you know, retargeting, you know, I see a pair of shoes and it follows me around the internet. Right. So their bread and butter is coming up with these like data science models say, I should show the same shoes to someone three hours after they've seen the first ad. And then, you know, again for next week. And then they'll sort of like drop out. So like companies specialize in that. Some companies are more focused on brand advertising, right? Like I am Coca-Cola. Like you're not going to go and you know, click on the ad for Coke and buy, you know, Coca-Cola online. Like for you, it's more their job is to like make it top of mind. So you know, there's different companies that sort of specialize in these different approaches. And they work with advertising agencies and brands in order to sort of get dollars loaded in and work with them to figure out the target. You know, so some a typical campaign for Coca-Cola might be, I want to run this ad across the United States. Uh, you know, that's like a relatively simple one. You might have other ones which are, well, I'm a Toyota dealership and I know trucks are more popular, let's say Texas. So I'm going to, you know, run, uh, you know, ads for trucks in Texas. I'm going to run, I don't know, Prius ads in New York. Now, some stereotypical example, but generally... Like, and this all happens in real time, right? So you land on the webpage, it sends out, you know, and, you know, every time you see an ad, like that was an auction run. And so you can think about like all the compute that goes into it. And the sort of, the, the most interesting thing, right, is, or one of the more interesting things is the performance here. Like we typically try to get an ad to respond or render within 300 milliseconds. So we get a request, we fan it out, we, they have to, you know, run their evaluation, they send back a response, we apply various business rules. So for example, a common one could be, a specific publisher may say, hey, I have an exclusive with Toyota. I don't want to show any other car ads, right? So we could only allow Toyota, in that case, block for it. Uh, and then pass it on to be rendered, displayed. And then we also track, you know, was it in view? Like, was there engagement? And then that sort of goes back and feeds into some of the sort of data science optimization models. So we're doing about 200 billion auctions a day. So it's like pretty massive globally. Wow. So Wow. Yeah, yeah. So it's been this like a constant investment over the past 10 years. When we started, and, and this I think gives a little bit of a sense of the evolution of the product as well. So when we started, we were doing sort of what the industry calls native advertising. And the pitch there was you go to Facebook and you have these ads that match the look and feel of the content. And yet you go on the, on the internet, even if you're the New York Times and you're a recipe blogger, you'll see the same sort of ads, which doesn't really make sense, right? Like a lot of these publishers spend an inordinate amount of money and time to make their content look great. Like, why do their ads look so terrible and commoditized? So we, for us, the sort of the initial product was, let's work with these publishers to create unique templates, right? Like, you may want an ad that's square. That's not typically what you see in the industry. So we would work with them to create these unique templates and work on, I would say, like, some computer vision, you know, magic in order to, like, crop resize images in order to sort of fit within the desired layout, uh, inherit their typography and their style, and this sort of, sort of uh, this idea of, like, deconstruct the ad components from the way the ad itself was rendered. So that was our first product. Like we've achieved success there. And you know, over the years it's been, you know, are there other formats we could run? You know, let's start doing video. Uh, there's also even like the transaction ideas, like it used to be very, you can imagine, you know, handheld, right? We needed to have a salesperson go to a brand or an agency and sort of, you know, fight for every dollar. Now a lot of our work has been, why don't we integrate with this DSP directly and then have their sales team, you know, sort of push trip lift in order to make money. So like that's generally like the big story. The uh, and the sort of going forward, 
like a lot of the work for us is how do we do more on video? So we have a pretty big connected television team and we acquired a company last year that specializes in privacy, right? So how do we take advantage or, you know, of these privacy changes in order to create better and better products? I think it's impressive, but when you, you know, when you think of a journey, right, it's not like we were doing 200 billion auctions, you know, a day to start. It was like, you start very small and build a marketplace and you keep growing. Like there's some funny stories, you know, like one of them was like, we asked, you know, like someone's like, I'm willing to pay $2, you know, to show a thousand of these ads. So typically everything's measured in like terms of thousands because each ad is worth, you know, worth fractions of a penny. So like we charge them a two, you know, like $3. They're like, hey, how come we got charged more? I'm like, oh, you were part of our beta. Like lo and behold, everyone got charged more because we had a bug. So it's like, like that's sort of where we started. Yeah, well, let's, I mean, so, you know, I, first of all, I think it's so fascinating to, to talk to folks who have been part of like these kind of lengthy journeys of companies, you know, because you do, you get to see, you know, kind of the evolution, obviously, of the business and, and those outcomes, but, you know, of the technology from from very early to now what I mean, you know, to me, that sounds like an incredibly impressive numbers. I don't know whether that, you know, how that measures in, in the grand scheme of ad tech, but I mean, you know, that number of impressions or, or I can't remember the term exact term used, but to me that that's super interesting. I mean, so obviously you just shared one story about, you know, kind of, um, you know, a, a bug or a mistake that that happened, but but can you talk just from an architecture perspective? As you said, I think you've been there thirteen years, right? I think yeah. Roughly, no, almost ten. Okay, so so quite some time. I mean, you know what what were some of the you know without giving away obviously all the the, the important details or company secrets? I mean, what was kind of the you know the the architecture, if you will, of the the technology that delivered this then versus you know maybe kind of share a little bit of some of the evolution of kind of where you guys are now. Yeah, so when I joined, the company was about 10 people. You know, and at that point, it's you know, half engineering and, you know, half commercial folk, like marketing folk. Uh, and so, you know, when you start a marketplace, especially in advertising, it's pretty hard to get immediate scale. So our first version, like sort of our first product when I joined, it was built on top of another company. And I don't want to necessarily name names, but you could think of a company that provides roughly like a way for you to manage your own, like I think of it like we were in essence acting as a publisher, right? Like a website owner. And instead we were receiving these requests and then sort of sending them out like through this network. But we had to do a lot of sort of hacks in order to get this idea of native to work, right? It was a, something like designed for banner ads, but because we had control of both the website, right? That it would be rendered on. And we also had control of the ads themselves. Like we use like a variety of like, you know, JSON P hacks to be able to sort of, uh, like normally it wouldn't work, right? Because what typically what an ad has is HTML. What we instead did is we passed basically a callback, right? We call it we passed back a sort of like a JSON call, and we knew that the JavaScript code that would be able to be executed was already on the publisher page. So in that case, we're sort of passing these queries. But that makes sense. I mean, you're trying, you know, you got ten people, you're trying to kind of get something going, you know, leverage the tooling, the system, the ecosystem that's already out there. You know, I, I, I mean, you didn't say this term, but I, you know, almost kind of like, hey, we've got to get kind of a mini, um, minimally viable product kind of out the door. We're not going to, you know, build for year 10 on day one. So that makes sense to me. Yeah, exactly. And at some point, you know, once there's enough traction and volume, you realize that sort of like very much like we love talking about tech debt, right? But like the decisions you've made just make it very hard to sort of innovate and build forward. Like one method model I really like is like a sort of for, if you think about like physics, right? There's kinetic energy, potential energy. So it's like, uh, you know, you got to invest in clean code. So then you, you know, build up that potential energy. You have, a, you know, a product feature or enhancement you want to do. You release very quickly through kinetic energy. But hey, you're back in the bottom of the mountain and you have to like invest in cleaning up the code base 
or like even like our case, the architecture a bit. So in our case, like we we spent quite a lot. Like we knew we were going to move away from it, like at a certain point, and that's sort of what we were doing. I want to say between like 2014 ish to around 2016, and I remember that day pretty clear because it was. Um, my birthday, like we actually did this sort of swap, but generally what we uh, did is we built our own exchange. So in that case, you know, you could, if you think about like a network diagram, you know, it's like our code, like we run the JavaScript and then it makes a request to their server and then their server does all the magic. And then, and then we've sort of loaded all of our content, all of our assets or all the rules into their system. And I guess we sort of just did a swap. We said, hey, let's release this new JavaScript that's going to live on these publishers pages and make a request to our system instead, right? Just changing a single URL and then still have our sort of system proxy basically make a risk to what the way it used to work back, you know, to their sort of this other uh, sort of company's network. So, and there was this gradual migration of all the integrations that were connected to them. Let's shift them over to directly integrate to our exchange. And like, that was the joke of like, hey, we're charging too much, we're charging too little. But we did spend a lot of time, uh, like around there, like it's not as simple to, you know, build something from scratch because like part of, like something that ended up being like surprisingly, I would say like interesting is like before that, like we didn't have to do any reporting, right? We would get reports from this other system. Now you have to like collect, and we had like all these tricks. We would sample, hey, collecting data is expensive. You know, just drop an event one of a hundred times and then assume, you know, everything we, you know, and sort of like approximate like what you need to see. And at some point we're like, we actually need to collect every event. And then it's like, hey, now it's the rise of Kafka. Now it's the rise of a proper, you know, data pipeline. Like, hey, MySQL no longer works. Now you have to like, you know, invest. At that point, we invested in Redshift. Like start doing our, you know, really like, a, you know, building up a proper data engineering function. And it's sort of interesting, right? Like, uh, you know, when you're small, you generally have generalists that do a little bit of everything. And as you get larger, you have specialists that understand the particular sort of area and they have known expertise. And I think the challenge, like for a business, you know, how could you, I guess, grow them in tandem, right? Because you don't want to have specialized needs without specialists, and you also don't want to sort of have the inverse, right? You don't want to necessarily hire specialists that can really support where you are. So I think it was this like healthy balance, right? Of like, really like, hey, we need to build some data engineering you know, skills. You know, let's build expertise and hire. There's so, there's so much to dive into there because, um, you know, I think it, I think in the companies I've been a part of, and certainly Cockroach, this can be true too. I mean, you know, when you when you start small, you're right. Everybody is a generalist, right? Everybody is is kind of has a front seat at the, you know, at the show or a seat at the table, whatever you want to describe. And and people get very involved. And then you know, as businesses grow, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. Like, you start to need to have specialists, and those people that were really good at everything, you know, and were part of everything, need to kind of pick a direction a little bit. And I and organizationally, I wonder if you found that that to be somewhat difficult. You know, where folks who had been kind of very engaged, at, you know, in all parts of the the company, the decisions are now having to kind of pull back and focus on one thing. I think that like organizationally, I've seen that being somewhat of a challenge where people are like, hey, you know, I miss being part of everything. Now, you you know, you want me to only do this? What what happened? But I think it's part of the natural evolution of companies is that you have to get specialized in order to keep growing. No, that's definitely true. And we've had you know, people leave for it. And I think it's an honest conversation. It's, you know, and a lot of people say, hey, this is not the company I joined three years ago. You know, some days I feel like that, <laughs> right? I think to your point, like it is natural. I do think a lot of people find interest in specialization. You know, like we have a great junior, right, who did a little bit of everything. And like he'll, you know, readily admit that he doesn't do like front end. And like he's become our expert, you know, working on our, this real-time bidding system and the exchange and like optimizing like the low-level Java. And like it's sort of a good sign, right, when you, 
know, you use an open source library like we use Netty, and at some point you realize, hey, there's this issue in Netty. I'm gonna go commit it upstream and like fix a bug down, you know, in their system and that line. Like, and it's good, right? People, you know, some people like that, right? This idea of like this like depth and optimization. Other people do stay generalists, and um, you know, just like being jumping around and you know, fixing whatever comes and learning whatever comes. There's probably a lot of these parallels too, you know. Uh, like open source probably encouraged this idea of specialization, right? Because like if you have to write everything from scratch, you know, I think like 20, 30 years ago, like you just weren't able to create like the amazing products we all create now. So it's sort of like the flip side. Like I, I don't remember someone told me where I read this, but it's like the idea of uh, you compare it with medicine, right? Like you used to have you know, 100 years ago, there was this thing called a doctor. And like now you have cardiologists and psychiatrists <laughs> and podiatrists. So maybe they're, it's, you know, we're seeing the same thing with software engineering. Obviously, like there's this whole AI angle too, and like, what does that mean? I do think people like you want to give people opportunities, right, to like discover and see what they enjoy, and then you know, give them work that they both want to you know master, but also that supports and grows the business. You know, one thing I also wanted to touch on because again, it's it's very top of mind for us, and it, I think it's top of mind for a lot of the companies that um, that we talk to. And, and interestingly enough, I, I I got back yesterday from the Gartner Data and Analytics Summit down in Orlando, and so. You know, to, to some extent, I think this was a, a, a thread throughout a lot of the conversations, and that's observability, right? So you, you kind of said, hey, we were using this tool. They were providing us all the reports. I had all this great insight into what was happening. You know, when I move away from that, I have to kind of build my own. I mean, I'm using the term observability. You may have a different different term, but I, I know building a product here at Cockroach, it's been, that's been one of the really key and important things that we've done. It, it, it's one thing to build a product, but if you don't really know what's happening, you know, inside the product, how it's being consumed, you know, are issues occurring or are they not occurring, you know, all sorts of stuff. That observability becomes, I think, really critical in kind of building a wonderful product. You know, what what are your thoughts on that? I mean, is that is that been as an, as an important uh, a piece of your puzzle as it, I think it has been for us? I'm actually very glad you brought it up because I feel like, like definitely so. And I'll give some angles and maybe some thoughts on it. One thought is... Uh, it's rare, and maybe from what I've seen, like it's rare that a product manager, you know, would sort of prioritize observability. And I think we got lucky because we didn't have product managers for quite a while, so a lot of the time it was you know engineers getting exposed to problems directly. And you know, the first time an engineer gets an issue, they're like, oh, "Screw it, I'll just deal with it." Second time they do it, whatever, I'll deal with it. And then the third time, you know, they'll be like, "Let me just build a solution <laughs> yeah. for it." Yeah, good. And there's a lot to be said about you know, just escalating things directly to like engineering teams because they really are the most, you know, capable of solving it. And I think we've invested a lot in these sort of like self-serve tools just to help us address problems. Like some examples of the ones we've done is like we created, uh, like for every auction, there's a lot of steps, right? There is what we receive, you know, how do we enhance it? You know, so, so one, like an example of enhancement we, we do is when we receive a request, it typically has a cookie you know, to identify like the user, but that's, you know, unique to our domain, right? Because cookies are tied to a domain and we need to map it to the partners we work with. Because if you're, let's say, a buyer like the Trade Desk, like you don't care if it's triple of user one, two, three, four, five, you want to know that it's Trade Desk user A, B, C, D, E. So, you know, we have to take this request, do like a very quick lookup. Like we use AeroSpike, so like a pretty fast, like uh, database used in like AdTech. You know, augment the ad request, then we attach like all sorts of rules to it, like which buyers are eligible. Uh, how long did it then they take to respond? What creative did they respond with? How much are they willing to pay? You know, how who paid the most? 
right? Like various data science, like predictions around performance. And then we determine when. So we created a pretty clever idea, like a debug auction, right? If you knew the right tricks and you were on the VPN, the right network, you'd be able to, you know, add them to the URL and you'd get like, maybe like if you printed it out, it was probably like a 20 page doc, <laughs> right? Of like all the deals that happened. But with the way we did it, it was like this work in progress, right? And especially it was like pretty hacky. And at some point people realized, hey, this is actually incredibly valuable. And someone at some point, uh, had this idea of, hey, I'm going to create an interface called, you know, debuggable. And so you just added, right, to a particular, you know, a bit of code sort of in our, in our execution chain. And like, lo and behold, uh, suddenly we have like pretty robust sort of reporting auction. And that's like for a particular auction. Like the other big piece we've done, I actually think it goes, like I like, you know, everyone's going to have their own reasons for success. And it could be right, could be wrong. But I think a big part of it was our investment in observability and especially co-locating. Uh, commercial metrics with uh, sort of engineering technical metrics. Because we, because you know, it's relatively straightforward to, you know, take Datadog, New Relic, like Honeycomb, and they give you a ton of instrumentation on the code, although albeit it's pretty expensive, but it's a lot of work to then go in and say, how do I also push in sort of the commercial metrics? So in our case, it would be something like, how many dollars are we making per second, you know, by partner? For our publishers, you know, how much are our publishers making per second? For our ads themselves, like what is their render rate? You know, like 98% render is great. Like, is there a combination where it drops, you know, below 90%? In that case, you know, throw an alert and we use, you know, pager duty uh, for things like that. But like a big part of it is really getting into a single system because then you can say, oh, I can understand why. Oh, our spend dropped. Oh, because latency in our US West region increased this much, this much, this much. Like, uh, like one or the other, like, I mean, especially when you're dealing with incidents and like, you know, stressed out and like everyone's trying to like find answers like getting that you know, information like available and broad presence incredibly like valuable no i think it you know obviously you know you guys have such a a focus on on the customer and consumer experience um you know but even for us it's the same kind of thing i mean this ability to 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 i think you know uh combine the data of you know the the, the product you know the insights you know how are we serving this request or you know various other kind of technical things that we're monitoring with, you know, other more customer facing user facing interactions and being able to pull all of this data together to have some insight into whether things are going well or not well, you know, whether this is an area of the product we need to focus on or pull away from. It's so critical, but it's so hard to do. I think, well, I, I think this is one of the things that, you know, people who have, have really cracked like the SAS algorithm, you know, um, have, have figured out how to marry all of this data about interactions, you know, to make their product better. And it's, it, it's difficult. It's one that we're working really, really hard on. And I think like, to your point, we were lucky in that very early on, we, you know, made an effort to, to, um, to track and observe lots of things within the product stack that, that maybe others would not have had the forethought to do. And it, it, it's helped a lot. Um, because if not, I, you know, I, for, as a former engineer, I was so panicked that, that, uh, by the way, I, I consider What's myself an engineer, a current, engineer. Yeah, I was going to say, I better correct that because <laughs> I actually still enjoy writing a lot of code. But, you know, I was always so panicked that something I did was going to cause issues. And you're lucky if, if the issues that your code creates are obvious because it's, it's, it's easy to fix. But a lot of times, you know, the issues that we find that really plague people are very, very difficult to identify. And then. Um, you know, again, that that kind of having having you know really well thought of, out observability helps give some confidence that if does something if something does sneak in, you know you can you can get to it and resolve it. We benefit in some cases from you know every industry has its own challenges, though. But what's 
I would say easier than most for us is at the end of the day, you're dealing with ads. And each ad is once again like worth fractions of a penny. So you know, if you show an ad or don't show an ad the wrong way, like you know, you just have to you know majority right at the time. And what that has afforded us is this ability to sort of test in production. I know everyone has like pretty strong views on like testing and like how to do it. Like we benefited a lot from being you know, like from basically diverting one percent of our production traffic to what we call a staging environment. You know, everyone one staging also means very different things to different people. But for us, it's running. You know, it's connected to like the production. I would say like state but it's running a new version of the code. And it's useful because we, because so many, like probably very similar to you, it's uh, the problems like the issues happen on the edges. Like in our case, it could be simply like, oh, in this version of iOS on Safari, this sort of video format on this publisher is not interacting nicely with their HTML. You know, it's like they, they upgrade, let's say they J, their J, jQuery library. It's like those sorts of examples. And like we have a long ways to go to make that better, right? Like I love this idea of like this, you know, pure, um, you know, this like self-learning system that says, "Hey, uh, this combination of things used to be perfect, and all of a sudden I'm seeing like weird anomalous behavior." The problem with that is there's just so much noise, and like how do you sort of differentiate the two? But that is sort of an area we leaned in pretty heavily on, like relatively early, right? It's like hey, we benefit from being able to run in production. So instead of running, trying to come up with you know unit tests for every single combination of things, like let's just like Dumb in there. They'll look at the high level stats, collect all the data we can, make it easy for our team to like to dig into it and analyze it. So, you know, it, it cockroach, one of the things that we talk a lot about is, you know, resilience and and obviously from a, a database perspective, you know, you know, creating a, a data architecture that can't go down. And and the reason we do that is, you know, we find that that at least our customers, you know, outages like are big deal. Like you don't want your database and ultimately your applications to go down. It can it can be a, a serious thing. What I mean, how do you all think about resilience of like your architecture? You know, what happens if and when things go down? What do you all do about that? Or how do you think about kind of those problems? In, in some industries, it's not as important as others. I'm, I'm just curious, you know, kind of how you think about, about those kinds of topics. Yeah, so for us, it's for sure a journey. So when we're out, like you can think of like the impact to us, like what happens if we're down? Oh, so as a company, we don't make money. So, you know, that's one risk. Uh, risk two is, you know, our customers don't make money and advertisers, you know, can't spend money. Like in some cases, we do have sort of obligations for our customers to stay up, especially depending on the type of product they use. So, you know, once again, like we endeavor to do as much as we can and like probably similar to you, you probably have quite a lot of outages that you look back at and you'd be like, what were we thinking? <laughs> right. It's this constant uh, sort of period, like, uh, like improving things. So the way we think about it is maybe um, like I'm probably going to maybe give you a high level view of like four different systems and like I'm sure there's more but like a one way of thinking about it is like we have the code you know that's generally going to be living on publishers pages and rendering the, the code, uh, sort of the, uh, the ads themselves you know that's javascript it's static you know we use a cdn for things like that we have this real time bidding system and that needs to stay up all the time because that's what's listening to these requests running these auctions and we've spent a ton of time making that resilient so i mentioned we're running in four different regions we have like regional uh, sort of resiliency there, right? So if one region goes out, we're able to shift traffic automatically to another region, you'll fail over to another region. And the other, I don't want to say it's like innovation because like it seems maybe like obvious, but it's uh, like we basically try to make this application as stateless as possible and sort of minimize any rights it needs to do. So the only like output it produces to like a state uh, sort of database is Kafka. 
So I'm using, we're using a Kafka instance as a database, but it does not connect to MySQL. It does not connect to anything. Instead, what we have is a, like a separate application that sort of reads the state from all sorts of places, right? It reads it from MySQL. Like we use like Mongo, like we have like some, a few other services that we sort of connect to. So it pulls a state, creates like these giant protobuf objects, uploads them to S3, and then it says, hey, sort of these instances on the edges, and we're running about uh, like on any given day, like it fluctuates, you know, uh, day over day. Uh, or like hour by hour, depending on like sort of like, you know, the volume, but about a thousand, like between a thousand and two thousand. And what they do is, you know, they get an update. Hey, I have a new list of ads or I have a new list of rules for my publishers. Fetch them from S3, load it internally and say, suddenly you have a new state. So that's kind of nice, right? Because it means each application is, you know, like stateless. If sort of you didn't have data, you know, updated five minutes ago, whatever, use the most recent, you know, healthy state. So this idea of uh, not, sort of coupling your systems too much and understand, like, I guess investing in the graded performance. Like, what does the graded performance look like? And like, how do you avoid complete and utter failure? We have a data pipeline. And similar to that, you know, if our data pipeline is delayed, it's okay so long as the data is in Kafka and, you know, makes its way to S3. And at that point, right, we have a lot of our batch jobs take over. And then the last piece is, you know, the most one from like the, I would say, sort of managing the state, right? Like various UIs and APIs where customers you know, internal external could go in and you know, modify these rules. And, you know, if that goes down, the rule, you know, it's like, it's not terrible, right? Because what that means is just the system is going to run on the most recent state, uh, but new sort of new ads or like new campaigns, like it ends up sort of blocking like future, sort of revenue future. So, but it doesn't necessarily break the existing sort of operating sort of performance. I don't know. Does that help? No, a- absolutely. And I'm, I'm curious about one thing, because again, this is something we we talk about a lot, I think is, or, or people ask us about is, and I'm just curious, you know, do you guys, do you test failure? In other words, you know, do you, you know, as part of a, a, a regular process, like try to kill these parts of the application and see how they respond? Because I think one of the things we found is that, you know, people oftentimes will talk about, you know, hey, I need to have this scenario or be resilient to this. But the, you know, the real world testing of like catastrophic failure doesn't you know, it's it's not easy to do, by the way. I mean, it's really actually quite hard to do. I'm just curious. I know and we've talked to some other folks who are starting to, to kind of think pretty creatively about how to like inject failure into their systems. Just curious, you know, is this something you guys are routinely testing or is this and, and maybe by extension, you know, have you had have you experienced kind of really significant outages and what what did that look like? Not as, so I guess to answer your first question, like not as much as we probably should. And I think part of, and I'll give you an example of failure that we did have. So part of why is over the years, we've run into so many issues that, you know, we've sort of like resolved them that way. And I think we have a good mental model for like the way the system communicate. And we've sort of decoupled them in a way that makes sense. So for, like in our case, like, you know, in some cases, like I know microservices, you know, used to be big, maybe not as big anymore. But like that ends up being a much harder like thing to reason about. You could actually think of our architecture as being a bit more of a hub and spoke, maybe, right? So there's this hub, you know, this sort of real-time bidding system. And you could think of it as like like it's a pretty beefy job application, you know. Like I like it. like it's not necessarily a monolith, it's like a giant, like, but it's close, right? It just does a lot. And the way like if any system on the outside fails, like it'll just keep serving ads, doing its thing. It sort of doesn't really matter, right? So in that case, we have monitoring on its integrations, and then you fix like the system that feeds into it. But the system itself is sort of stable. And like we've invested a ton in like making sure, like that's what like you know that example of rolling out the staging, you know, the one percent of traffic. Like we'll also run it 
uh, you know, when we deploy, we deploy to each region, like one at a time, you know, like deploy to Asia first, because that generally has lower traffic. Like look at the performance, compare it. You know, we have various Grafana dashboards that look like stats and like, you know, spent per second. So once again, focusing on a lot of these commercial metrics, and if things look good, then we'll sort of roll it out to, you know, Europe and like US West Coast and like US East. So like that's been sort of our model, I think. Part of it is because our industry like is, I would say, like a bit more tolerant of failure. You know, like if we were doing like, you know, FinTech or like, you know, Metech, we probably wouldn't necessarily have a similar approach. We'd probably be much more like invested in like like real failure but i think for us it's generally and we've been okay like the most recent like major outage we've had and this is like embarrassing but we <laughs> like okay. i mentioned we have like some, everybody has them dan it's all right yeah yeah yeah. so we use you know data science models right to bring more value to so an example could be we try to predict right what would the performance be of a particular ad and then we try to give our customers you no know, sort of opportunities that we think their campaigns will do well and lo and behold, you know, our data science team uses uh, sort of like we use Databricks and Spark to do some training and Python. Like the, I forgot the we use uh, Onyx. So O and X. I don't know if you're familiar with it. I've heard but of it. Yeah. Really, it's like an interface, right, where a data scientist could run, you know, code in Python and train a model in Python. It sort of serializes the results of that model. It could be a random forest or regression into this like Onyx format. And then our exchange, which is written in Java and sort of uses JNI to like, evaluate C code, sort of loads that in. And you, know, you get that like fast evaluation, right? Because you don't want to be evaluating in Python, especially for this, you know, real-time bidding system to like massive scale, but it's okay for you to do training in Python, right? Because that's like a one-time sort of operation. So in that case, lo and behold, you know, the Python library got updated automatically, right? Because hey, that's what good open source is. You release a new version and it caused some break in like this Python, like Java, like C evaluation. And like that took down like a good chunk of us. Really? Like what we're doing, right? Because we just simply didn't put in version. And, you know, it's one of those things that we didn't, and the fix for it was obvious. You know, like, you know, you could probably, you and I could like brainstorm like half a dozen different solutions, right? Like, what is it? Oh, well, obviously the real thing is like you should pin every version. Like what else? Oh, well, you should not launch this model. Like try to read it first before deploying it, right? Like, you know, basically simulate it in the production like environment before you actually push it to every instance. Um. It's like, hey, if, you know, don't let the model crash, right? Like in that case, you know, wrap it in the exception or something wrong. The problem, right, is this Java to C interface. Like those are the things that cause problems, right? Because, you know, C tends to not be like the most memory safe language. And when you're dealing with like one language to another language to another language, that tends to be sort of like difficult for us. So just out of curiosity for you personally, I mean, I know you've mentioned JavaScript a few times. You just mentioned Java. Are there, are there particular languages that, that you kind of have gravitated toward or... You know that you, you know those kind of the principal languages that y'all use. I'm a, a former, or I keep saying former. I'm not a former. I might go write code today. What am I talking about? Um, future engineer. Future, future and current. Uh, definitely Java. I definitely used to do tons and tons of JavaScript. Um, so just kind of curious, like you know, if if those are technologies y'all still strongly believe in, or have you moved on to all these other fancy things that, that people like to talk about now? So we generally let teams, you know, have some freedom in what they choose. And I think it tends to be around, you know, their particular, I would say like industry standards. So like the data team, right, that does data engineering, like, you know, they use Spark. So they're a pretty big user of Python and Scala, right? Because that's generally, you know, what seems your data science, you know, using Python. Like our, like full stack teams will use, you know, TypeScript and JavaScript, right, for a lot of what they're doing. And yeah, our, this real-time bidding team is like pretty deep into Java. And I know Java has like a bad rap, but it's also, you know, because, Not you know, 20 years ago, like it was pretty verbose. Like these days, 
like you get quite a lot of performance. Like it's it's great performance. Like it's not as verbose as people think. Like it's becoming more and more functional. Like some of our code, you know, in Java right now looks very much like you know modern clean Scala code. Like we're using a ton of uh, like I'm gonna like butcher it a bit, but we're doing like a fair amount of, like reactive programming, like leaning into like Spring Flux, like digging into you know just making it easier for us to really write code. Very much like you know in JavaScript, you have like a series of callbacks, but it looks a lot more elegant and clean and you know supported in Java. So like we're so doing do you guys like, use Spring? Yeah, like uh, well parts of Spring, but generally yeah, you know like trying to do like more of that. But yeah, we're I, I mean we're big fans. We're uh, like. Like we use, like I mentioned, like Netty under the hood. And I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's like great technology. It's uh, It's been around for a while too, hasn't it? I mean, yeah, it's, it's been around for a while. Pretty stable. What JavaScript libraries are, I mean, I, I think you mentioned early jQuery, which brought back lots and lots of, of good memories. Um, I'm trying to think of what some of the other ones were way back in the day that we used to. There was like Domo or I think. Oh, yeah. 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 And there was some other one. What was it that, it'll come to me, but um JavaScript's fun. TypeScript, I haven't quite quite gotten to yet, but I know that's kind of where a lot of things are headed. It just makes it, I think, a little bit easier. I have so many thoughts on like front end. Like I know front end. I, once again, like I my background is more like on the back end side of things, but front end is so complicated. Like it, it, it's sort of sad, right? Because everyone's like, oh, front end, like that's the easy thing, you know? Like I actually think it's incredibly hard. Like it's it like, terrifies some people. Yeah, it, it, it it's tough. Like. One is everyone's going to have an opinion, you know, like if you have some, you know, thing hidden away in the bowels of like Java code, like no one's going to know. But, you know, something looks off on a page or you want to reuse a component here and there, like how will it actually look? Like a lot of what we're doing, you know, is like moving a lot of our applications, uh, you know, on the front end from uh, sort of very old Angular, right, to modernize to like Next. And, you know, that requires like which functionality is even used. Oh, we never really instrumented that much of the back or sorry, the front end. Or like, how do we have multiple teams? Like, oh, we'd like to have a consistent experience across multiple products. How do we organize our teams to do that? Hey, what if one team needs to upgrade to a different version? How will that work in this like single page app with like a slightly different like, team that's not ready to upgrade? Do they, how do their components work? Like, it's like, I, I think for us, it is somewhat of a new muscle. Like, because we've done, I would say, like JavaScript, but that has to be much more of this, you know, run any any browser across any environment, not this world of, hey, let's create like amazing, you know, sort of customer facing apps that have like pretty complex workflows. No, I totally agree with your sentiment, by the way. I mean, it, you know, I think people think front end is like just writing HTML code or something in CSS, but some of the most talented engineers I have ever known, terrified, absolutely terrified of doing front end work. Because it is, it's incredibly complex, and 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 I almost think to a fault at times. Like there have been, you know, some of the the, the tooling and technologies that have become popular. I think in recent years in the front end, have, you know, I, I know are, are enormously powerful, but almost like, you know, make things a little too hard to read and reason about, which isn't necessarily a good thing. But that's engineering, right? It's like comes in cycles. Like even a lot right now, there's a lot of this work around like combining the front end and the back end, like trying to create like single framework that like Next does a little bit of both, right? It's like lets you also like, create the back and forth. But yeah, like I miss, I guess, you know, go back to like jQuery days, like being able to like make a code and refresh your page and like lo and behold things work. Now it's like Webpack and build and. Yeah, it's crazy stuff. It's, it's crazy stuff. And you know, the other thing too is, I mean, you mentioned it, like I, I have found myself in the work that I do now spending almost, you know, going back to more simple front ends and moving a lot more toward just monolithic, you know, applications. I mean, there's a lot of value in just being able to build something quickly and not have to introduce all the complexity of of all this other stuff that that sometimes happens with microservices and there's a theory that microservices are more of like organizational 
it's like solving organizational problems rather than technology problems. And I think, I mean, as with most things, obviously there's like shades of gray, but I, I think there's some truth to it. Like what our approach has been like approaching like some of these services, you know, it's like, I don't like saying microservice because it means different, but you know, like just reason being reasonable about services and like understanding boundaries. Part of the problem you never really run into is like people disagree on what the boundaries are. And like that causes like, like fair amount of like, you know, problems but you can still write your code in a way that makes it easy to decouple it if needed right so that's sort of a binar approach right like think more about like the interfaces like try to you know you know make the method calls you know like have uh, try to be a stateless like try to you know adopt a lot of these like better practices so if we need to split it at some point like we'll be able to rather than sort of prematurely optimizing yeah this like the religious zeal around like it must be must be this this pattern or this framework, it's like, ah, come on. I think when you get bitten by too many things, you become more of a, I guess, pragmatist, right? You realize. I agree. Well, listen, Dan, I, you know, we're kind of running up on the hour and I hate to take more more time than, than I deserve. You know, maybe just as we kind of close out, talk to us a little bit about, because there's so many other topics I wanted to get to, by the way, but I, maybe we'll have you on as a, a guest for I'd a be second glad time. To. We this, can this is fun. You know, it's like, I think better in conversation, you know, just... You know, just going back and forth because you, I inspire a thought, you inspire a thought. It, yeah, you do. I, like I've been, I can mental notes of like, oh man, I wish we had time to cover this. This is really interesting. But, um, but I, I do want to leave time because you know I've ended a couple of the podcasts like this. You know, it, for us, it's the beginning of our fiscal year. Although maybe I can't say that as much anymore because time is. You're going to come up with a new question quickly. too. <laughs> I, I, yeah, it's like, yeah, I may have to come up with a new question. But it, nonetheless, it's spring. The flowers are blooming. It's a time of optimism and, and looking forward and future. You know what? What are some things maybe that that you know whether it, it, uh, it triple lift or, or you know even personally some things you're kind of looking forward to for the coming year? Yeah, I think given everything that's going on, it's easy, right, to be a, a bit bearish. But I also think there's I know I think there's always opportunity constraints. Like for us, we have a couple of different things. One is that I, I don't know, I'm, I'm sure finance will want me saying it or not, but you know, it's generally for a lot of companies, right? It's this idea of like, could we do more with less? How could we be more cost efficient? And I, I don't know, I like, I like this idea of like cost optimization. Like I, like I generally enjoy it, right? Like, is it, are there ways for us to like optimize this system? Do we even use this system? Hey, oh, we used to not sample here. Hey, let's start sampling and like see what the impact is. So like, I, I do think uh, using this opportunity, right, as a way to sort of get better at the operational excellence because because when the market recovers, you know, which it inevitably will, you know, we'll be in a much better position, like sort of to execute. So I'm generally excited about sort of just bringing more rigor, right, to our sort of um, cost. And we get to work on like pretty cool technologies. Like we've rolled out like spotnesses more and more, right, where on AWS. So being able to like re-architect our systems to support spot, like that's exciting. Uh, the other big, big one is obviously more on the product side. Like we acquired a company last year called OnePlus X and sort of their pitch I'm going to butcher it somewhat, but sort of what the area they play in is coming up with like privacy safe ways of doing like audience, like creating audiences, right? You saw, I don't know, these, you read these few articles, you must be interested in cars, like sort of that sort of idea. And, you know, we acquired them in order to, you know, build this great product together. And like, we're sort of reaching this point of like closer integration, right? Coming up with this joint product, like launching it. So it's exciting to see how that goes. Like there's always excitement, you know, on our new product lines, you know, connected television. Uh, sort of, I, I know, like there's uh, the way I think about it is like, yeah, the overall market may contract, right? But it's sort of our chance to get more market share. And so when sort of, you know, it's like maybe like bigger slice of the pie and the pie will continue growing. It sort of looks like there. Like for me personally, there's just, 
don't know. I, I wish I was younger, you know, and like had more energy, <laughs> like fewer kids. But like, like, like just everything that's happened, like AI, like I, I guess I'm a techno optimist. And like I used to, like I'm sure a lot of people like will have vendors reaching out. It was like, hey, we use AI ML. And like, you know, four years ago, I'd be like, this is some garbage, you know, like AMI also a buzzword. Like there's obviously something real here. Like I've used it. Like I like co-pilot. Like I've been like playing around with it. So like, I was like, you know, what does it actually mean? And it's, I, I don't know, like some days. And the other like awesome used to have this like meaning of like both terrifying and now it's like amazing. So I have both of those. I fluctuate between those from, you know, one minute to another minute. Oh, I tell you, I mean, this, this summit this week, I mean, I just did, you know, I did the loops around the, the exhibit hall. And I mean, I, I don't think there was a single booth, maybe with the exception of ours, that, that didn't reference MLAI in some way, shape or form. I and mean, it seems to just be taking over the entire vernacular of what we're doing. It's interesting, exciting. I still don't know what to do with it all, but it's certainly out there. Like, I'm an optimist. Like, I, I think we'll, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out. And I, I do think it'll hopefully, you know, help all of us like do our jobs better. And so last question, I always like to poke at people, especially people who have books in their background, as I do. Is there something back there that you, that you love? Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of your go-to book or is there something on there that you haven't read yet that you're getting to? Or is this just decoration? Any answer is good. I'm generally not a decorative person, but there's also some of the books are my wife's. But I know. So the book right above my head, I like it. It's like Edward Tufte. Uh, I don't know if you're like, familiar with it, but he's like a big infographics guy and i know like for someone that like does back end i have a very good i know appreciation for like good design right and, like information density and like like how could you you know showcase you know information in a good way so like that's like something i enjoy like you know leafing through it's like it has good production value like a book i'm currently reading it's not on the shelf because you know i've shifted to kindle which i sometimes regret like i wish i could have physical books but i wish i didn't have to like move them or like store them but I like I like the feel of a book, but uh, it's like uh, amp it up because I know some people. Re- it's uh, by uh, the CEO of Snowflake, like Frank Slootman. and I know I read, you know, like like business books. Like for me, they're like watching an action movie. Like I sort of know what it's about. I don't have to be like I'm spending engaged. It's like light reading, so I like it. But I know it's you know forced me to think it a little bit differently, right? He's very much this like tr- straight shooter. Like even by the name, right? You could see sort of get what he's getting at. But he's, you know, like, instead of thinking about, like, next week, think about today. You know, like, uh, you know, just very much, like, get rid of a lot of the nonsense, right, and the optics of what we're doing. And instead, like, focus on, like, great work, you know, align incentives. Like, make sure, you know, your sales team and your sports team and engineering team are all working towards the same goals. Like, that sort of thing. Yeah, I, uh, I, I agree with you. I love reading kind of the, the business books, uh, too. I mean, I've got all sorts of different – I, I kind of have, like – I try to read like a couple different books at the same time. Like I'll have like one that's just fun and entertaining and then one that's like a, you know, self-improvement. I hate to use the term self-help, but you know, could just something to help kind of make me better. I go through like sci-fi books too, like periods oh, yeah. where I like, you know, like binge on them, like read a series. I don't know, like as a kid, I think there's someone sad, right? Because like as a kid, you'd be like, oh, the science, this unknown. And like these days, maybe there's a little feels, maybe there's a little bit less ambition. Maybe not. But, you know, like 50 years ago, or I guess 100 years ago, right, when they had all sci-fi books, time travel and this and that. I know. It's fascinating stuff. And a lot of good books out there, by the way. It kind of, it's, it's good. It's kind of, it's fun to, to think about the what ifs, you know, what the future holds. Well, listen, Dan, this was a, a wonderful conversation. I, again, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us. Um, I really enjoyed our conversation. And again, hope maybe... In the future, we'll get you on for a second episode to kind of finish some of the things we started. Yeah, well, yeah, thank you again. I really enjoyed the conversation with you.
Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you're a fan of the show, be sure to subscribe to the podcast to get every new episode in your feed as they're available. Also, rate us five stars on your favorite podcast platform. If you like what you've heard, you can also watch Big Ideas and App Architecture on our YouTube page, linked in the description. Thanks again. Thank you.